This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kate Elizabeth Russell, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're in the United States. This is the beauty of uh, Zoom and COVID, I guess. It's broken down a lot of barriers for us in terms of conversation. We've accessed so many great writers like yourself. And you're originally from Maine, but Mm -hmm. you're not there now, are you? You're in Wisconsin. Is that right? I'm now in Oregon. I've been... Ah, moving okay. around for most of my adult life, but hopefully going to be in Oregon for a while. This is where my husband is from. And so we, yeah, we just recently moved back here. Um, but yes, grew up in Maine, which is where my dark Vanessa takes place. Yep. Okay. So Kate holds a PhD in creative writing from the University of Kansas and an MFA from Indiana University. Her work has appeared in Hayden's Ferry Review, Mid-American Review and Quarterly West, amongst other journals. She has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. And this, this extraordinary novel is your first novel. Oh my God. For a first novel, uh, you've got to be absolutely thrilled about the, the way it's been received. Yeah, it still sort of stuns me. I mean, I had kind of a long lead up to publication, which helped sort of get me used to the idea of the book coming out into the world because I worked on it for such a long time that it was a real shift in thinking about it actually being in the hands of readers. So I had about a year and a half of getting used to the idea of it being published. Um, But even so, it being out in the world is just stunning. And it still like kind of surprises me every time I get a message from a reader who, you know, responds to the book, has it resonate with them. It's still, it feels like a gift every single time. Okay. So the book is called My Dark Vanessa and it's about a relationship with a young girl and her teacher. He's years older than she is. And then later on in life, he is indicted or charged for rape. Is that right? He's accused, at least, on social media, yeah. Yeah, he's accused of rape. And then Vanessa, the character, starts to think, was it a real relationship or was that what happened to me? I mean, it's just firstly beautiful written but so complex and so heart-wrenching at times. Now, before we get into the topic, because there's so much there, I just want to know how, because you're so young, how you came to writing and how you came to be published, because it's not easy. No, it's not. But as far as like starting to write, I wrote from a really, really young age. And it wasn't that I thought, oh, I could make money off of this. Like this will be a viable career for me. Like I never thought that. I come from kind of a lower middle class background. My parents didn't go to college. Like my mom was an office worker. My dad was a radio DJ. Um, So my parents, they always like... um, 
very much encouraged my creativity, but it came from just a place out of the joy of doing it. And so I was always writing starting from probably when I was like five or six years old and then just continued. I mean, even as a teenager, I always had these long writing projects sort of going on in the background. That's what I did when I came home from school rather than working on schoolwork or studying, right? I just like wrote my own creative stuff and then continued through college, got a master's degree and eventually a PhD. And throughout... Can I just interrupt there? Sure. In terms of creative writing and then going to a formal structure of writing, do you think that changed your writing style? Like, do you have, do you think that that was a shift in your writing? That's a good question. I mean, I do think like in hindsight, looking back, I think the things that I turned in for workshops were really different from the stuff that I produced when I just knew that I was going to see it or my friends were going to see it. My friends have always been my my first readers and sort of my, my go-to voices that I trust rather than classmates that I had in writing programs. So there was always a real divide. And I think I felt like the, what I needed to turn in to workshops in those creative writing programs had to be more um, sort of traditional, I guess, or more formal um, following. I mostly wrote short stories because that's what creative writing workshops were sort of designed to handle. And those short stories, yeah, they always just kind of um, were modeled after the short stories that we were being assigned to read by the professors who taught those workshops. But then on the other hand, I was always working on this novel this big sprawling project that would become My Dark Vanessa. And the way that I wrote that was largely through like journal entries or disjointed scenes, or it was just a really messy, sprawling writing process. But that felt like, I don't know, maybe less serious to me somehow, which seems like that mindset on my part was very much informed by um, sort of the things that I was taught in those creative writing programs of what like serious real writing is versus what journal entry type writing is, mm. which is like less serious, not, not, not real. Anyway, it took me a long time, I think, yeah. to, to unlearn those ideas and finally write the book that I wanted to write. Do you think, so at that point, when you decided to study writing, that's when you kind of pretty sure that this is going to be the career path that I want? Not I mean, not even. I feel like I chose to study writing, never believing that I was ever going to make money off it, which is a very, it's, I always assumed that I would be, I guess, sort of like my mom, who my mom, she always had these um, very intense interests and passions that had nothing to do with the jobs that she had, the way that she made money. Like I was raised um, to sort of believe that you made money the way that you did, you had a job, and then you, you know, if you were lucky, you could leave it at work and go home and sort of do what you love. And that was the life that I really saw for myself. And I mean, by the time I got a PhD I, in creative writing, I never thought that I was going to be a professor because the job market is so tough in the U.S. at least. And, and I assume probably in Australia, too. It's really, really tough to get those professor jobs. I never thought that I would. And so I figured, well, I can but I know how to teach English composition, like English 101. And so I can do that and then write in my in my spare time. And so that's sort of um, up until my book sold. That was that was the the, the sort of 
career path, if you will, that I that I saw myself um, falling into. How old were you when your book sold? I was, how old was I? Was it 34? Wow. I think? Wow. Okay, so now. tell me how it came to being sold. Like what happened before, what happened at the time? Oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> so as I mentioned, I was in a PhD program and I really entered into that PhD creative writing program with the goal of getting the book done because I knew to to get that degree, you have to write a dissertation. And for a creative PhD, that dissertation is a creative project. So I thought this is the way to get this novel written once and for all. And so I did it. I I did all the coursework, passed my exams, wrote the dissertation, finished the book. And that was in May, 2018. And that was when I started querying agents to see if I could actually get this book out in the world, find an agent, find a publisher and, and, and get it out in the world. That was my goal. And it took me about five months of constant querying of agents. I just didn't hear back from hardly anyone. And I kept a spreadsheet. So I know I queried exactly 66 agents before I got an offer. And I ended up still being really lucky. I got like six offers of representation, but it did take wow. me a long time. And then my agent and I ended up working on the book. We did maybe like one line edit of it and and waited for about a month before it went on submission. And then once it was on submission, it's it sold within like 48 hours. It was very, very fast, like overwhelming whirlwind. Um, I was in the middle of teaching when I got the call that we got the first offer in and um my student, so my students like witnessed me getting the news that my book had had sold, um, which was just like incredible. They, I hear from the students in that specific class sometimes, and they're like, "I'll never forget that, like we got to see that. Well, that was so inspiring. Cool. I mean, it's pure, it's a pure teaching moment, isn't it? It's like you practice right. preach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, how did you feel? <sighs> It, I mean, it was just totally overwhelming because not. it wasn't just my book selling, this book that I had worked on for so long, but it was also selling in such a way that offered me this level of financial security that I didn't think I would ever have access to, both for me and my husband. I mean, our lives, we, we were living on, at that point, we had been living on graduate teaching stipends, which was very little money. And then we, we sort of shifted into adjunct um, money, which is even less, like we were bringing, we were barely, you know, being able to support ourselves. And then all of a sudden we were like, oh my, it just, it changed everything. And it was incredible. It took me, I think, I think it took me like that year and a half of the lead up to publication to really wrap my mind around it. So let's talk about the topic because it, it, it's a big topic. And I've got to say, when I picked it up, I thought, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I'm a lot older than you. And I don't know where this, this is going to take me because sometimes, you know, uh, topics like this are uncomfortable. But yeah. what I liked about it is that there was a sense of honesty and passion. And I really you know, do believe that when people fall in love, they fall in love, right? So that age disparity, and it's a hard, as we all know, it's it's kind of like a spell, isn't it? And it's hard to mm-hmm. break. And you capture that really well. And now when you look back on it, even myself, if I, and you know, and it makes you think about your own life and the relationships you had and whatever, and you think how much of it is 
is grooming and how much of it was real. And you can't, you, you present that very well. Um, talk to me about that and where the idea came from and how, how Vanessa came to be. Yeah, yeah. That line between grooming yeah. and seduction and coercion yeah. and seduction, it's so fine. And I don't know, I think sometimes it just doesn't exist or it's impossible to pin mm-hmm. down. But yeah, in terms of sort of where the story came from, I think I think part of what makes the book sort of resonate with readers is the way that I wrote it, which is that I started writing this when I was like 16 years old. That's really when I started working with these characters of Vanessa and the teacher, especially. And when I first started writing this, I saw it as a dark, complicated love story. That's how I understood it. That's how I understood this kind of dynamic. I was really influenced by Lolita, which I read for the first time when I was 14. I saw that as a dark, complicated love story. And so that was the approach I was taking as I wrote this. I never would have called this a story of abuse or a story of trauma. I thought of it as a love story the way that I thought of Wuthering Heights as a love story, right? One of obsession and darkness. I was also obsessed when I was younger with um, Phantom of the Opera. And I saw what I was writing as sort of connect, you know, sort of a cousin to that sort of dynamic of an older man and a young girl um, in sort of a teacher-student romantic relationship. And for a long time, that's how I approached this. Even through my 20s, it wasn't neat until like my mid to late 20s, that I started learning about trauma theory. And I saw so much of what was familiar um, in Vanessa and familiar in my my own emotional experiences from when I was younger being presented to me as sort of like symptoms of trauma or elements of trauma that, that may show up on the page, whether that be flashbacks or um, dissociating or um, just this sort of um, cyclical thought patterns that that one can get trapped in when remembering. So once I started thinking, okay, maybe there is trauma here. Maybe there are elements of abuse here. That really broke my mind open. And I think it broke the story open too. And that's where the tension, I think, ended up coming from, was me as a adult woman writing or completing this this novel finally, but still retaining so much of that adolescent voice and perspective. I tried so hard to hold on to that. And um, it took a lot of work because I kept, as an adult, I kept trying to sort of push my younger voice out of the narrative. And I had to constantly sort of hold myself back, keep myself from signaling to the reader too strongly. Like she's being abused here. We all know it's bad. Like I just, I had to, had to keep myself out of it. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sense, it's like you grew up with a book. In a sense, mm-hmm. it's like real time, isn't it? Yeah, because what really, that was when you were sixteen is very different to what it's like when you're in your late twenties, right? Absolutely, absolutely, I did, and it's it's a strange thing because it gives me a very personable or personal and impossible to describe relationship with this book that is very different from the relationship that readers might have with it. But sometimes I'll get these messages from readers and it seems like they understand the book the way that I do. And that makes me feel um, really intimately connected with certain mm. readers who, who come to it, which is so special. It is really special. It's, it's a special book. I, um, what came to me when I was reading it, I remember when I was growing up, a friend of mine was having an affair with a married man and he was mm-hmm. not a lot older, so um, just a bit older. And it was that same space, that complete besotted love, romance, everything you kind of know about, about affairs. But then she found out a few years into it that he was having an affair with another woman as well. And the betrayal and the anger and me as an outsider, I couldn't understand that because I thought, well, he's already living with his wife. So, you know, he's already that kind of person. But for her, the fact that he was having an affair with another person was the ultimate betrayal. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that is part of what I tried to bring into the book mm. with Vanessa and the other student accusing strain of, of Taylor. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I worry this might be oversimplifying it, but I, I do think so much of the appeal of an affair of a secret re- relationship is being made to feel special and sort of put on a pedestal. And the idea that this person who was married or older, a teacher, whatever, this person more powerful than you is carving out a space in his life that's just for you. It's like U-shaped, right? And only you can fill it. And even if you know he's married or even if you know that you have to be kept a secret, that's okay because you're giving him this special thing that no one else can. And then when you discover that that isn't exactly true. That, yeah, that hurts. That's really, it's very really, really similar painful. To what, yeah, well, that's what happened to Vanessa, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You discovered that it wasn't just her. Yeah, that, and I, there's a moment in the book when she realizes that um, Taylor was given a book, like, I don't want to spoil anything, but but Taylor was given a book that, that Vanessa was also given. And it's a small thing. It's a very small detail. But um, to Vanessa, that's maybe the thing that finally sort of breaks her and makes her realize it because it's like this gesture, this thing that she had cradled for years and years as evidence of his, you know, very unique love for her not being mm. quite so special. Yeah. So you started writing it pre-Me Too and you published it almost at the cusp, really, of Me Too, Mm -hmm. right? Talk to me about that, the backdrop of that. Because it's so formative for all of us as women, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So Me Too started, I mark the the start of Me Too as October 2017. That's when the stories about Harvey Weinstein really broke, I guess, in the in the New Yorker and in the New York Times. And then it sort of snowballed from there. But when those stories about Harvey Weinstein first came out, I was in the home stretch of the novel writing process because I had to finish it by early 2018 to get my dissertation done on time. So I was finishing up this present day plot line of another student coming forward and accusing the teacher on social media. So I was deep in writing that. And then these stories start breaking and these conversations start happening on social media about sexual violence, about coercion, about victims coming forward after so many years. I mean, it it mirrored what I was writing in this really uncanny way. And at first, I didn't know what to make of the parallel. And I sort of dismissed it at first because it seemed like, to me, like me, this emerging movement of Me Too seems so focused on celebrity and on these stories of really sort of obvious, grotesque abuses of power, whereas I saw what I was writing as a much more subtle abuse or or at least a type of abuse that was much more prolonged and sort of insidious and and the victim felt very much um, complicit and willing, which wasn't really showing up as much in those early Me Too stories. But then as it went on and Me Too sort of opened up to this larger cultural conversation, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to address this or I'm going to have to decide like what to do with this parallel because my book is going to be read in the context of Me Too, no matter what, if I do end up getting it published. So yeah, I tried to, what I tried to do was to think about what Me Too could offer me as a writer dealing with the subject material and how readers now would sort of have a background on these issues that they wouldn't necessarily have had before, especially on ideas like why it would take so long for a victim to come forward, like why a victim would wait years and years before sharing their story. And also just like what it looks like when someone shares a testimony of sexual violence on social media. Like, what does that look like? What's the pushback? Like, are they validated or not? That These are things that readers yeah. saw play out. Well, do you know, also too, as Vanessa has the same experience, often it's not that obvious. At the time, it's not obvious. You know, at the time you're complicit, as you say, you think you're complicit. At the time, it, it's not perceived as violence for you. You you know, you're deeply, utterly, absolutely besotted in love. And really, it's not until that relationship ends and there's time to reflect. But there's also time, it's not just the reflection time, it's just you start reading and listening and hearing and then doubting which is exactly what she did as well, you go back and you look at the relationship in that context of what you know now. Yeah. And that's such a painstaking process. It's mm. so it's so difficult and so sort of claustrophobic feeling. And then there's also the question of what do you do? What do you do if you do look back on a on a relationship or even just a single encounter and you see it with with fresh eyes or you see it with the sort of the wisdom of of age and and distance from it and you say well no that that wasn't completely consensual 
then what do you do? What do you do? Um, and I think Me Too sort of gave us a model of you go and you tell the world and you you share it publicly, but that's not necessarily the, always the right thing to do um, because that can bring a lot of scrutiny and a lot of chances for misunderstanding or um, uh, victim blaming or what have you. And so that was something else. Absolutely. Because it's framed as a as like an accusation of a crime Mm -hmm. right, right away. And that's not necessarily what a victim wants when Mm -hmm. they want to like share their truth or, or, you know, sort of redefine an experience that happened to them. It's not necessarily about trying to get someone in prison it's it's just about figuring out their own experiences. So anyway, that was another big thing that I that I wanted to just kind of explore a little bit in this book. And there's there's no easy answer for that question of what do you do if you look back and you, and you realize that that a relationship you had when you were younger maybe wasn't wasn't consensual. There's no easy answer to that, but I think it's worth exploring. And it's so personal. Everybody's response is so personal. You know, and when I was talking mm-hmm. about persecution earlier, it's not just persecution of the perpetrator, it's persecution of the victim. And, you know, Absolutely. it's just so much around it. Completely fascinating, honestly. Um, you know, and I just can't believe it's your first book. So insightful, so well-written and so perceptive. Now tell me, how do you go to the next one from here? I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it's intimidating, the Mm. thought of starting something new when I worked on this one for so long, but it also feels like coming home a little bit, like just sitting down and and sort of getting back into that creative space. It's like, oh, right, this is still the same, like this act of writing is still me. And so it's really reassuring in that way. And also I'm sort of come to accept that my obsessions are my obsessions. Like I still have more to say about these ideas and there are other characters that are sort of waiting for me to slip myself into. It's kind of creepy, but that's how I imagine myself writing is sort of like, you know, taking on these other identities. Um, There's still so much out there for me to write and work with. And so it's right now I'm just excited. I'm just excited. Just, have, have you got a project going or you're thinking about? I do. It's yeah. it's in the early stages, but um mm-hmm. it feels it feels really good. It feels better than I expected it yeah. to feel. <laughs> uh, going back to your um comment about, you know, it's in your mind and the stories you're thinking about different characters. A friend of mine is a crime fiction writer, an Australian writer and, and quite well known. And he said he was with his wife one day and she said to him, You're with her, aren't you? <laughs> talking about the character that he was thinking about in his head. Mm -hmm. And it's so true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think my husband would really identify with that. It takes a, it takes a very confident and strong partner, I think in a lot of ways to be with a writer. Yeah, it does. Well, Kate, I can't thank you enough. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. You're so remarkable. I can't wait to see your career develop and grow um, and become, you know, I think one of our most important writers, and I'm saying this because I'm reading so much young fiction and I've been reading for a long time and it's so refreshing and inspiring. And when you think, sometimes you think like me, that you just can't come up with a a new idea because I've been reading for so long and then you pick up my dark Vanessa and there it is. (laughs) Thank you. That's really, thank you. That means a lot. 
congratulations and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.